Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast about innovation and equity in global health. It's the third of our informal set of podcasts looking at global health and how it relates to global security and what that means in the light of major new existing and future pandemics and how health issues impact a more traditional definition of security, which after nearly 30 years of a generally peaceful post-World War, uh, post-Cold War compact has been thrown into confusion again with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, our guest today is Arthur Snell, former British diplomat, businessman and podcaster. Arthur has served in Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Afghanistan and Iraq, and he's the host of the Doomsday Watch podcast, which is required listening and provides informative briefings on the state of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He's a regular guest on our favourite podcasts, The Bunker and Oh God, What Now? And he's just published his first book, How Britain Broke the World, War, Greed and Blunders from Kosovo to Afghanistan, 1997 to 2022, which currently sits at the top of the UK charts on Amazon. Now, I actually met Arthur virtually about a year ago, and he became a huge help to me and other HIV and sexual rights activists as we were trying to evacuate LGBT leaders and community health workers from Kabul after the fall of Afghanistan. And quite by chance, he and I were able to meet in person in Montreal at the end of July 2022, when he stumbled upon us at AIDS 2022. Well, Arthur, first up, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. And um, yeah, wasn't it, wasn't it funny the way we ran into each other in Montreal, of, of all the towns in all the world? All the they, bars, the yes. And it, yeah. indeed it was all the bars, yeah. Yes. Yeah, but it was great. Yeah. Um, uh, well, first up, congratulations on the new book. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's, uh, uh, as anyone who's written a book will know, it's it's a little bit like having a baby, except it probably takes more than nine months. And um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it's more painful because uh, obviously I've never had a baby, but um, it's uh, it, it it was um, it was a really uh, challenging experience and um, incredibly satisfying to see it you know, on the page physically and, and in the hands of readers. Well, you know, at a time when UK pod, podsters and pundits, well, and, and frankly, the global health community as well, is trying to understand what global Britain is post-Brexit. It's quite a sobering account of our British foreign policy from all, all political parties. Um, and it's had quite a, Britain has had quite a damaging effect on global security. Have I got that sort of basic premise right uh, yeah that, that's certainly my view and 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 the as you you kindly introduced me there you know my background is as a British diplomat I served from 98 to uh, sort of uh, 2014 um, and and still you know maintain close connections with that community so uh, the period that I write about starts under a Labour government of course Tony Blair later Gordon Brown and then we transition to the Conservative government we have now and as you observe. Uh, so it's not just about one party or one political ideology. And I think in that period, Britain has often uh, accidentally, not necessarily through cynical or zero-sum behaviour, but has often accidentally contributed to global insecurity. And we've seen that most obviously in the Middle East, in Iraq. Uh, but it, 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 it is seen in other arena, in some ways, in more subtle ways, perhaps, um, parts of Southeastern Europe in the Balkans, uh, North Africa, but also actually in some of our economic activities, the way that we have made ourselves a sort of global hub for money laundering and, and those sorts of things, and, and the way we have dealt with certain sort of global issues. So I think that um, my book is, a, is, is an attempt to have a serious grown-up conversation about our impact in the world, and, and I hope that's what it will stimulate. You, you touched on... Uh, a couple of issues that are almost sacred cows in British culture. Um, our obsession with James Bond and 007. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and I, I heard you say that you consider that British intelligence during this period was sort of fairly shoddy, fairly fairly tabloidy, almost the son of the, 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 the global intelligence community. And, and I wonder, is, is this because the quality of the intelligence gathering was poor or was it the behavior of our political masters and mistresses 
Yeah, that's a really good question because I think um, it's it's possible uh, to sort of hide behind the idea that what happened in that period was that the the political masters, Tony Blair in particular, and and his you know immediate uh, a- a- allies were were fixated on this idea of the invasion of Iraq, and therefore the intelligence services in in a way that they should not have done, but but they kind of responded to that pressure and they perhaps you know cut corners and and slightly delivered uh, the answer that he wanted to hear. But I think if you read if you read very carefully the the very meticulous. Uh, researched account of the particularly the Chilcot inquiry, but there are other inquiries into this period. There's a Butler inquiry, the Hutton inquiry. I mean, there's so many inquiries that we, you lose track. But the Chilcot is the sort of the main one. I think what you see is it that it, you can't blame it all on 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 Blair and Alistair Campbell and those sort of names that we're all familiar with, as much as it might be tempting to do so. Uh, it is pretty clear that uh, the intelligence service uh, SIS otherwise known as MI6, supposedly James Bond's employer, was serving up unvalidated and basically shoddily produced intelligence. And I think it was doing that uh, partly because it felt under enormous pressure to, to produce these results. But of course, there must be an aspect to this that an organization has its own standards and values. It has its own ways of doing things. And And I'm not in a position to delve into the sort of internal workings of, of this particular organization, particularly as we're now talking nearly 20 years mm. ago. Um, but it seems reasonably clear that there were problems in the production as much as there was pro- problems in the sort of political requirement. I mean, I, I, the reason it stood out to me is that that comment stood out to me is because I, I sort of think of, uh, again, our obsession with uh, James Bond or George Smiley as part of this sense of British exceptionalism that 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 is part of a sort of cultural, emotional um, uh, cause of Brexit, and and I I, I wonder, um, you, you know, Britain's relationship, its, its role in the world has changed so much since the Second World War, um, and and I just wonder whether you think that um, how shall I put this. Uh, are we going to truly become global Britain or are we on route to being a little England? I, I remember, well, I listened to a podcast you were on this morning where you mm. referred to Britain having a midlife crisis. He's the old yeah. chap in the bar that we're, we're all sort of slightly concerned about. Yes, and it does feel a bit like that. And of course, this is the day for listeners who are uh, not in the UK or that the day we record this is the day that we, we've acquired yet another prime minister as the Conservative Party continues its sort of never-ending psychodrama. So Liz Truss, uh, you know, won, won the leadership contest there. Uh, but to go back to your question, yeah, Little England or Global Britain, I feel, Ben, that um, the people who talk most about Global Britain are the ones who actually want Little England. And the people who are global in their outlook, people like you, Ben, people like me, uh, are in a way the ones who are, we're, we're furthest sort of from power and influence at the moment. and And so... Uh, it's this strange idea that, I mean, the, the people who talk about global Britain are quite often, I think, people who would reject globalism as a concept. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's full of contradictions. And I think ultimately, yes, Britain is is going through this sort of midlife crisis. And a lot is, is tied up in Brexit. But it's not just about Brexit. We, we, we've got to think beyond that. It's about whether a whole economic and social model really continues to work. And I think we've you know, Britain uh, elected Margaret Thatcher in 1979, and then, of course, Tony Blair in 97. And those were the two sort of great political figures of the late 20th century. Mm. And I think our 21st century uh, has really, uh, we've struggled to figure out where we're at in the world. We're not, we are, we are not a global great power. We know that. Uh, but for for reasons that to me are I I think are tragic, we don't seem able to get on with being a great power within Europe, which we are manifestly. You know that was never in doubt, and so having sort of flounced out of Europe, we we are struggling for that role. And of course, you know people have been observing Britain's lack of a global role for decades, so it's not a new development. But it seems that we, we've kind of intensified that problem, and that's where we are in 2022. 
you know, I wanted to get us onto the the the, the global health component of this mm. because, of course, that's that's the audience of a shot in the arm. Yeah. But but before we do that, you, you've just made me think of something. I, I you know grew up being a proud European. It was part yes. of my British culture. Oh, and by the way, uh, for those uh, of our listeners who can't see this, I'm actually wearing a UK and uh, European Union pin given to me by the uh, UK mission to the United Nations in Geneva about 15 years ago. Well, so it's put, a beautiful historic artifact. <laughs> well, precisely, right? Um, but it's it has struck me that one of Britain's problems is that we haven't had this sort of existential crisis that Germany had, that France had, that Spain had, and Italy had, and that we've sort of been chugging along. Um, you know, it's probably no surprise that our favourite TV shows are The Crown and um, A Downton Abbey. Yep. Um, and they all speak to a time when we thought we were something that we're sort of not anymore. Do you think that's right? I think it's. I think there's a lot of truth in that, and of course, the problem with that observation is that no one wishes on Britain the devastation of what continental Europe, mostly. I mean, not every country, but most countries in continental Europe faced uh, at the at, in the in the 1940s in World War II, and no one wishes on Britain uh, the sort of devastation. That that you know happened to Rwanda after a genocide, or 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 you know you you could talk of countries that have gone through intense crisis and then go through periods of renewal, and we don't always like what comes out of the other end, but it certainly it it what 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 you get is the the elite of a country comprehensively sort of fails, and and a new a new power group appears, and I think one of the issues in Britain is that our elite, which is you know it's been doing this for hundreds of years of history is incredibly good at renewing itself. So it always is sort of one step ahead of the revolution. Uh, and, you know, famously, the, the French had revolutions. There were revolutions all across Europe in the 19th century. Britain didn't have a revolution because the British elite was just allowed enough freedom and sort of democracy into the political space that it kind of didn't need one. Um, I'm not suggesting we're quite in that space. You know, this is 1848 all over again. But I do think that, that there is some truth to this idea that that because we've sort of avoided cataclysm, our elites are increasingly incapable of really diagnosing the root of our problem. So, and, and you see it today, you know, Liz Truss, new prime minister, she's still going on about tax cuts and, and you know, the importance of, um, of sort of allowing businesses to flourish. But the, it, it, it's the elephant in the room is, is the fact that most businesses in Britain simply won't survive the, the next winter because of the energy bills. And, mm. and, and that's not even taking into account all the additional bureaucracy, if you're, particularly if you're an exporter, that's been piled on you as a result of Brexit. So there's this sort of, we're living in this kind of weird shadow world where we, we discuss one set of things, where the real thing that matters is, is sort of on the other side of the room. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is extremely helpful. And it's actually a very nice segue, Arthur, to get us into the global health conversation. Yeah. Brand new Prime Minister, former Foreign Secretary Liz yeah. Trust. Liz Trust. I said trust. Whoa, that's Freudian. Um, that's but we're also recording. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, we will deliver. We will deliver. We will deliver. Um, but we're recording this also just at the beginning of September, prior to the uh, global fund to fight AIDS, TB and malaria replenishment conference in the US that President Joe Biden is going to host. Uh, Japan, the US have all stepped up. They've they've increased their contributions by 30%. We're trying to raise $18 billion for these uh, pandemics as well as the, the response to COVID. Um, and uh, the UK wants the global fund's uh, second largest uh, supporter, I believe, has not yet made a commitment and the signs are not good. Um, so uh, we saw with uh, Foreign Secretary Truss a very significant reduction in our overseas development uh, contributions. And, and I just, what advice would you give us? What do you think the global health community should expect from a Truss administration? It's a very good question. And particularly on this point of of uh, overseas development aid ODA, which of course, you know, people in your community, Ben, will be acutely aware. Britain has become 
one of the world's leading aid donors, but then breaking a manifesto promise and actually changing the law to do so, the current Conservative government uh, decided to drop its commitment to fund 0.7% of GDP uh, in aid. And that was a really uh, strange and inexplicable choice because it's one of those case studies of where, yes, uh, the the government clearly in, in, in the aftermath of COVID faces considerable challenges, economic challenges, but actually the, the saving that's made relative to the overall government budget is 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 significant but it's not it's not existential but it is existential for those aid programs that have been cut and and the difficulty then follows of course that we're entering a period of huge turbulence globally so you know you you've already mentioned the war in ukraine there are other uh, sort of calls on the uk aid budget so all of that is just a preliminary to sort of warm up to saying well where does where does global health fit in all of this now um, it is hard to divine uh, a sort of major enthusiasm on the part of Liz Truss um, for this subject matter. But I don't want to say that she doesn't care about it, because I don't think that's true. And I don't think that's fair. But all I'm saying is that it's not obvious that it's sort of high on her agenda. So to try to answer your question very directly and and help as helpfully as I can. And this is more of a sort of as a former insider rather than as a a podcaster, commentator, I think uh, the current Conservative government is very fixated on this idea of sort of mercantilist Britain, Britain as a trading nation, Britain, Britain for business, you know, global Britain. And of course, this fits with this sort of Brexit idea that that Europe is sclerotic and, and, uh, and, and you know, mm. unproductive, and, and we can do our own thing better. Now, Let's not linger on the facts of that argument, because actually, for example, our own productivity in our economy is worse than many of our European peers, depressingly, and doesn't seem to be improving. But just putting all that to one side, it seems to me that where Britain still has a genuine claim to a kind of global leadership status, I wouldn't say to be the leader, but to be in the sort of top rank, is actually in kind of life sciences, medical uh, research, scientific research generally. And of course, we all know the story of the, the Oxford team that brought forward one of the COVID vaccines. Uh, we, we know of the kind of wider history of leading British universities and their, their continued track record in, in developing sort of new technologies and, and, and new medical treatments. So I think uh, the best way that people in the global health community can kind of make the case is to, to to continue to restate the importance of Britain's contribution beyond the merely financial. Now, ultimately, of course, the Global Fund is about money. And I get that. And Britain needs to show the colour of its money. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not going to try to predict what will happen there because, you know, the, there are probably fevered discussions going on inside government. But I think to to, to approach it via that sort of framing of, of the importance that Britain brings as a sort of technology superpower in in this in particular in sort of life sciences might be a, a productive way forward yeah and you know the next phase of the pandemic's response is going to be all about implementing uh these new innovations uh, yeah. none of us are safe until all of us are, are, are safe and and it does just strike me again going back to something that you you have in the book is that with the global fund we actually do have a head of an agency okay it's not a formal un agency but peter sands former banker he's british so yeah. um you know i hope that uh, that helps sweeten the pot um the the other question the really big other huge question I've been dying to ask you. And, 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 and this is something that every time I listen to Doomsday Watch, I just, you know, I just want to jump through the, uh, the iPhone and, 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 and ask you this. Has Ukraine changed everything? Has it completely altered the way we think about um, the uh, threats to security and threats to development? And do the rest of us, from climate to global health, need to realign ourselves and, uh, and, and, and sort of essentially rejig our messaging and advocacy? I think it's changed everything for the moment, yes. And, and in a way, what, what is so 
extraordinary about this moment we're living through is that we, you know we are still in the covid pandemic albeit you know not in the acute phase um and and the covid pandemic changed everything and and I, you know that there is this slight sort of risk of of saying that everything that happens now changes everything and and are we over exaggerating the significance but i i think we just have to acknowledge that two sort of historically significant globally historically significant events happened one after the other directly and and it that's just the way the you know the cards fell um so yes i think that the issue with ukraine is that after a period you know we had the pandemic and that was obviously tragic and uh extraordinarily difficult in in all kinds of ways but also it drove the importance of health security of public health of resilience all these things that you you are much more an expert on than I am but almost just at the moment when the sort of the world was ready to say all right now let's think about how this what what this means for us bang russia invades ukraine you've got a major land war between two developed countries with powerful militaries this is nothing like what nato faced in afghanistan is nothing like what happened in iraq i mean the the comparison might be the iran iraq war which mm. albeit uh, not too highly sort of developed militaries involved huge numbers of soldiers you know pitch battles all kinds of sort of extraordinary destruction and and this is sort of what we're seeing uh on on the plains of of ukraine um and and what it just means coming back to you know the question about the replenishment for the global fund is that the the bandwidth you know even the us government the world's most powerful sophisticated administration there just isn't as much bandwidth anymore mm. um, for these really important questions. I mean, I think it's brilliant that President Biden is hosting the conference because it does give it that s seal of of, of significance. Um, but I'm just not sure how much bandwidth there is in Europe at the moment for this stuff. Yeah, and uh, and, and so two things two things strike me, Arthur, from what you've, you've you've said, and I hope I'm not unduly joining the dots where they don't exist, but. Um, after COVID, President Putin sort of uh, put himself in his own sort of entirely, um, uh, in entirely complete lockdown inside his DACA, and you know, and part of the argument is that he, you know, what whatever tenuous link he had with reality, um, that that got that got lost, and his fear of of, uh, of 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 COVID and the isolation that resulted enabled him to. You know, really articulate further his um, crazy one Russia, um, yeah. I, I, you know, concept. Yeah, and no, I, th I think that is right. I think, I mean, obviously the the contributory factors in Putin's tragic uh, mistake of invading Ukraine. There'll be lots of those, but one is this weird isolation. You know, we've all seen the the crazy long table with somebody sort of half a mile away at the other end. Um, but yes, this weird isolation, his own sort of paranoia of of illness and, and perhaps his own, you know, mortality, because, you know, he's not a young man and he's in a society where men don't have a particularly mm. good life expectancy. Um, I, I wouldn't say that's the primary reason that he did what he did, but I'm sure it contributed. Yeah. And, you know, there was, the, it, it, for those of us working in HIV and uh, injection drug use, harm reduction, uh, prevention strategies for men who have sex with men, sex workers. There has always been this incredible tension between Ukraine uh, and Russia over the ways that that you should be um, approaching uh, the HIV epidemic. And it really struck me that early on, Putin and his uh, lieutenants were talking about the the drug dealers and drug users that mm. were were um, leading Ukraine as much as they were fascists, which is just just bizarre. Um, but I, it, it sort of takes me back to, um, you know, Russia's approach to um, uh, harm reduction, and, and it has, has seen a terrible increase in the use of injection drug use, particularly with the sort of homebrew opiates that, that people yeah. have made. Um, you know, it's really, the approach is really rooted in the old Soviet system of managing alcohol dependency and it's it's not evidence-based i mean you know basically if you're caught with any kind of amount of drug on you you, you know you are heavily sedated 
um, and forced through a, a detoxification process, a post-abstinence process, and then you're on a register for five years. And it doesn't work. And it's no. been so interesting to see from Crimea to the Donbass that the um, harm reduction approaches that all of us were involved in, in fact, I was involved in um, in the harm reduction uh, centers creation in Ukraine, that these have just been eliminated, wiped out. And there's a sense of, to my mind, a a battle in public health that is, is a, a consequence of a broader clash of civilizations. And and I, I am I wrong to join those dots, or do you see that as well? No, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think what you're doing actually is helping people to see something which they they wouldn't see uh, if they're not you know in your field. And this is what's so fascinating about these conversations because um, the you know when when Russia has occupied parts of Ukrainian territory, I mean it's pretty obvious they've they've. That there's there's extraordinary collateral damage, you know, buildings flattened, civilian targets, all the rest of it. Quite a lot of 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 massacres, of you know, deaths of civilians, um, and and the degree to which there's any kind of public service or or you know the the, the building blocks of of kind of civilized society. There's there's no evidence of that. And w- and what you've just put your finger on is is a specific case study of how Ukraine was developing a certain way of dealing with harm reduction that is evidence-based, that is drawing on international best practice, whereas Russia has adhered to effectively a punishment-based model, which, as you know, doesn't work, but it, it fits in a kind of political culture in Russia in which you have an autocratic state and the state uh, punishes you in different ways for things that you might do. It might punish for you for what you think or what you read or what you say or uh, if you, you know, become dependent on certain substances. And, and it seems to me that it's, in that way, it's weirdly coherent what Russia does. But of course, it's just incoherent in the kind of modern scientific concept. Yeah, and, and we forget that at our peril. I mean, and the other thing, of course, they've done, and, and, and maybe this isn't new, um, but is to use the destruction of healthcare as a tool of war. Yeah. And, you know, the absolute... Um, you know, flattening of hospitals, of yeah. clinics, um, you know, it's been and, and and targeting of healthcare workers has been really concerning. Um, one of the the podcasts that we have done over the last few months has been with the Alliance for Public Health in Ukraine, a community led organisation that provides HIV originally provided HIV and harm reduction services. Its mobile clinics are now leading the country's uh, primary care services. And, and I just wonder, have we understood the extent to which um, uh, the targeting of healthcare um, is a tool of war in the context of Ukraine? It's not exclusive to that. I mean, we've seen it in, um, you mentioned Rwanda and Sudan mm. and um, Yemen. But is there something particular about uh, Russia's behaviour in Ukraine, do you think? Well, I think there's something particular about the way Putin's Russia behaves at war. And in a way, what you can see is a certain pattern. So if we think back, you know, where does it all begin with Putin? Well, in 1999, he's the prime minister of Russia. Uh, Russia is perhaps at its sort of lowest point in its kind of post-Soviet existence. Um, the you, President Yeltsin was, was effectively a drunkard. He was sort of incompetent. Uh, the, the Russian economy was in a mess. Uh, Russia had been forced into this kind of humiliating uh, surrender deal after its uh, uh, Chechen war uh, in the mid-90s. And so when Putin seized power as as president of Russia, uh, one of the first things he did was he flattened Grozny, which, you know, the Mm. Chechen capital, Um, and that included hospitals. Um, And then if you sort of fast forward to what happened in Syria, so that, you know, Bashar al-Assad, Syria's dictator, called on Russia to to support him in his civil war against the Syrian people, effectively. Uh, And Russia, particularly its its air forces, because it it didn't really face much threat from the ground, um, flattened hospitals in cities like Aleppo and Homs. Um, So we saw that Russia was willing to do this in places like Chechnya, in places like Syria. But I think there was perhaps um, a delusional view among some in the West 
uh, that, well, he wouldn't do that to Ukraine. He wouldn't do it to Europe. You know, there's this sort of weird idea that you can you can get away with it. It's a sort of Orientalism, actually. You can get away with it if it's Chechnya or if it's Syria, but you, you wouldn't get away with it in Mariupol. Well, well, he did. He did and he has. Now, whether he will get away with it in the long run, of course, we we don't yet know. But I think, yes, the, this is this is a feature of Putin's Russia and, and its way of carrying out warfare. It is indifferent to civilian suffering um, and, and it, it seeks a war of attrition. And, and um, unfortunately, it is, it's the tragic fate of the Ukrainian people to be the next group of people to suffer this. Um, so if you were, and, and I know um, my viewers and listeners are, are really keen to ask you this question. Um, if you look into your crystal ball, how do you see uh, the war playing out? How long is this going to go on for? Are we going to be looking at... Uh, you mentioned the Iran-Iraq um, war, which lasted, what, over a decade? Are we looking at that kind of um, hard slog here? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I don't want to put a number on, and, and maybe 10 years is too long, but I think it is years, and, and I, I wish it were not. But the, the difficulty you have is that um, for the Ukrainians, they, they need to regain their own territory. But of course, they can't devastate their own country. And this is this is sort of part of the challenge of, of fighting a war of liberation on your own territory. Mm. Um, when, you know, it, it's the, there's the question of, of the civilians that, that, that are in harm's way, but also actually the country itself, it, it has to still exist, you know. So that that is on the one hand. On the other hand, Russia, whilst it is it is not doing well, you know. Its its war has been a costly failure, but there are parts of Ukraine that it will be very hard to dis dislodge Russia from, most notably Crimea, but also the Donbas region, this the the eastern provinces of Ukraine, uh, where the supply lines back to Russia are, are fairly short. Um, and then coupled with that, you've got the fact of the potential for war fatigue in in NATO countries. So. Uh, everybody is, you know, all behind supporting Ukraine and giving them what they need. Um, but I just don't know how it's going to look after a long, hard winter here in Europe, which I mm. think is something that, you know, people are aware of. It, 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 this isn't a, a, a sort of shock development, but I, I just wonder if we're really ready for it. Yeah, we, we've been too cushioned, and I'm sure that yeah. is what... Uh, uh, the Russian leaders are are hoping that we're yeah. too soft. Yeah, yeah. I think Putin is his his fundamental calculation is that his people will suffer more than we will, and he may be proved right. Let's yeah. see. Yeah. So uh, Arthur, I started this set of conversations about global health and global security, um, and I, I'm being totally Machiavellian about this. Um, I saw that the global health community needed to up its game because, you know, we are, with the war in Ukraine, um, effects on food security, cost of living, um, energy, all of these things. Um, we have to find ways of arguing the case for why the world needs to continue to invest in us. And um, I just wonder what sort of general advice you might have for us about how we make this case. Um, as an example, in the past, the CDC used to define global health security as purely strengthening health facilities at country level to deal with whatever health crises came up. But it seems now much bigger than that. You know, we've got we're in an era of pandemics. COVID has taught us that we're we're not in one in a hundred years um, infectious disease pandemic. It's you know we've already seen monkeypox coming through. So you yeah. know this is a whole new era. But what are the touch points that you think we ought to be engaging with with the secure uh, the, the, the security community? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things is actually to note the successes. So when when the COVID uh, sort of outbreak began, uh, I I went back to some British government. A security strategy document, specifically a sort of threat assessment document, uh, which which predated COVID by I think uh, about five years, um, and it was sort of a threat matrix of the things that Britain needed to be worried about. And actually, right at the top was a, a flu pandemic. Now, obviously, COVID was not flu, 
but it you know it, it's not that far mm-hmm. and and emerging pandemic disease which covid specifically was was also highly ranked as as a serious threat so um the issue is not that uh countries don't sort of accept the significance of health security in the wider security question or you know sometimes it's i i think it's an unhelpful term people talk about hard security as if you know health security isn't hard hard security involves planes and guns and and bombs but you know as as we've all witnessed you know the covid outbreak will have killed many more than than even the the war in ukraine um so uh yeah to, it's it's not that the the hard so-called security community have have not taken on board the significance of health security but i think that the difficulty remains this idea of sort of priority that uh governments and i mentioned this thing earlier sort of bandwidth questions governments aren't very good you know that covid was everything for a while and it's now almost dropped off the agenda mm. unless you're in china of course where millions are still locked down in a zero covid environment and that in itself is quite interesting of how one country continues to pursue a very specific uh and and very stringent policy whereas the rest of the world has largely sort of forgotten about it um so going back to you know how how does your community sort of advocate with the security community i think it is part of it is just about the sort of patient restating of of the kind of the basic facts which is that the modern world makes these events more likely that you know the 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 world of 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 fast travel of of constantly moving populations and so on um but also actually that the um you know you can get diverted by something like the war in ukraine but it doesn't make a pandemic any less likely and i think mm-hmm. that's one of the problems that we you know we we sort of sort of think well we don't need to worry about the pandemic because we've got a war on now uh but that as you will know that that's just not how not not how viruses behave yeah um, they're not respectful of of uh, conflict no no indeed <laughs> and of course you know there's lots about wars that would would create mm. Mm-hmm. Um, very propitious circumstances for the spreading of disease, and 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 indeed, I I certainly right at the beginning of the 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 war in Ukraine, because we were sort of coming out of that era of social distancing, seeing those huge crowds at railway stations and all the rest of it, I certainly found myself thinking, gosh, you know, th- this must be an extraordinary vector for for spreading illness as as well as the the tragedy of, of displaced populations. So I think I think there is this point about continuing to maintain the importance of this question and, and sort of not to allow it to to fall back just just because of of immediate interstate conflict which ultimately you know we 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 know quite a lot about interstate conflict in a way it doesn't mean mm. that we like it or or we we're happy to be in it but you know we we've built up systems literally over centuries to manage that whereas i think our system to manage emerging pandemic disease are are still rather weak and and under underdeveloped still a bit medieval i think in 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 mm. many regards mm-hmm. um turning now if you don't mind to mm. afghanistan and, yes. and looking at that through a public health lens um again as i said at the start i i am so grateful to you uh for your counsel and and connections um, mm. as a group of us activists tried to help evacuate LGBT uh, sexual health and community health workers from uh, Kabul after the fall of Afghanistan. Mm. It's still a major challenge. We have uh, a huge amount on our hands. And in fact, a, a future guest will be the um, journalist and activist uh, Nimat Sadat, who is, is still very much leading the charge. Mm. Uh, but, but out of the headlines, what's your prognosis for what's going to happen in Afghanistan? Well, the um, the first thing that's happened is that the Taliban have reverted to type 100. percent So there, there was a sort of brief period of of I think um, faint and false hope that this was a sort of pragmatic Taliban that it had evolved that whilst you know it was still a hyper conservative religious movement, um, it was one that understood that it it couldn't continue to sort of play by the rules that it had played by before well that hasn't happened you know they went straight back to it and in fact the um operation uh, to get the leader of al-qaeda zawahiri what that tells us 
it, the fact that he was in central downtown Kabul tells us that you know the leader of the world's leading terrorist movement felt comfortable being living fairly openly in 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 the capital city. So that that gives us an insight into what Afghanistan is like now. So I think very sadly that is bad news for women's rights, of course for for um, you know LGBTQ plus communities, those sorts of groups that struggle at the best of times in uh, in a country like Afghanistan and I think they're, they're clearly under under huge pressure at the moment now what 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 does that mean well what can outside countries do we still do have some leverage that you know Afghanistan needs aid money it needs it desperately there are ways in which some of this is coming in and of course holding the population to ransom is, is, is not a way necessarily to deal with the 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 kind of bad acts that the Taliban carry out um, my hope is that over time, perhaps um, there can be a slight development of a kind of pragmatic way in which the Taliban will interact with the international community. But I think we shouldn't have any false hope for, you know, for for, for much much positive change. Sadly, mm, yeah. There's a there's another component of this mm. that that um, you and I have touched on, um, and it's and again, it takes us back to the Global Fund. Uh, we all invested heavily in rights-based approaches to health. And, and in Afghanistan, this creation of a cadre of community health workers uh, targeting the LGBT community or engaging the LGBT community, I should say, engaging uh, women, women's access to sexual and reproductive health and other things. And, and what we learned is that when rights-based governments are not in anywhere in the equation in a country. Uh, we've essentially exposed those workers in those communities. And I, I just wonder, does the broader international community appreciate and understand this? And, and, and what do we from the global health side need to do to sort of uh, forge better links and connections with, um, you know, the sort of security communities that are looking at what happens when, when countries fail? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, I think, I'll be honest with you, Ben, before you and I started working on the Afghan challenge um, together, I had no idea that uh, these communities, these activists, these groups existed in Afghanistan. You know, it's a conservative Muslim country. It, e even under the, the previous government, the, the, the Western-supported government, uh, it was still a highly uh, conservative and, um, you know, traditional country in many respects. So yeah, I think I think people with who are in the kind of um, security and defense communities need to have a much better understanding of the kind of diversity that exists, even in places you don't expect to find it in a places like Afghanistan. Um, so that when or if you know there are these crises, that people can take action in a in a way that is is prompt and and, and necessary. But of course, another factor is then also. If these communities exist, then do we understand how to protect them? You know, because mm. are we are are we creating uh, networks that are very exposed? Um, you know, uh, and and actually, ultimately, they're so exposed that they don't really have a kind of a resilience built into them. So th these are questions which I imagine were not asked very clearly or, or thoughtfully. Partly because, you know, sadly, that the history of Afghanistan of, of the last twenty years. It is about a series of short-term projects put together with huge international resource. You know, there's no, never any lack of resource, but so little strategy, so little strategy. And so at the end, you had Donald Trump's surrender deal, and that's mm -hmm. what it was. Uh, uh, and then Joe Biden's decision basically to, to go with it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I admire many things that, you're, that President Biden has done. But I, I think the way he, the precipitous way he did what he did in Afghanistan, with with no sort of mitigations, I think you know it's it's not it's not any um, surprise to say that was a tragic mistake. So one one other substantive issue, Arthur, to cover very briefly, and it's something that both you and I have been concerned about over this last year. Um, it's the diversion of health commodities and the sort of uh, inclusion of fake medicines, 
um, into the health supply system, into the distribution uh, system. And, and it's a particular risk given the huge investments that are going on in global health, in infectious disease around the world. Um, now, I, I was encouraged, I'll put it that way, to, to put this very much on the back burner for this year because we really need to focus on making sure that funds go to, uh, to support the response to pandemics. But can you describe your concerns about just how fake medicines and diversion of um, uh, other medications onto the black market could be a broader security issue? Yeah, I think, I think the problem you have is that, you know, organized crime networks are extremely creative, they're entrepreneurial, they seize opportunities. And if we are in a sort of phase of human development in which you know, medical technology is one of the kind of literally the most sort of valuable elements of human development, particularly if, if you're in a, in, a, in a global society that's afflicted by pandemics, that becomes obvious, then clearly that the value of, of medicines, uh, you know, is, is sort of increases exponentially, and therefore the value of fake ones increases exponentially. So I think you know, from our discussions, Ben, and from other work that I've done, I think it's clear that not enough is done to try to get on top of this issue. And actually, coming back to something we were talking about earlier, this may be another way that um, by demonstrating a seriousness of approach on this, the global health community can perhaps help uh, win over perhaps some of the slightly more sceptical players in the room and that might include British government in fact I mean you know like I say we we don't really know where Liz Truss will sit on this but there's clearly a skepticism around the idea of aid and there's this sort of nasty use of the word handout which I, I don't agree with but if, if that's their framing then one of the ways to, to sort of reassure is say well one of the things we want to do is is be better at tracking and managing and preventing diversion so that Whatever is put into the global fund or to analogous, um, uh, you know, uh, for, for funding projects and programs can be can be more more securely, um, you know, marshaled. So, Arthur, I know we're coming up to the top of the hour. I'm calling in uh, to you in sunny. Well, I, is it sunny? Rainy we're, Gloucestershire. We're rainy, rainy tonight, actually, which is no bad thing after the August that we've all had. You know, we, we need we need the rain. Well, we are in the midst of a, a major heat wave here in California. It's it's going to be up to 45 degrees today, apparently. Oh, my so goodness. It's, it's wow. super hot. But um, I wanted to wrap up with uh, something that I learned about you just very recently. Oh, yes. Uh, we're both British. We're, we're both from, I guess, similar tribes. Yeah. But it turns out that you and I, in our early education, had a very similar uh, life-changing role. Yes. I was a chorister at Canterbury Cathedral. Their mother, I've said it, you should be proud. You were a chorister where? <laughs> at Tewkesbury Abbey, which is not nearly as prestigious as Canterbury Cathedral, I should add, but it's an amazing Norman church in Gloucestershire. It's a, it's a vast, vast building, bigger than many cathedrals. Uh, and uh, yes, a life-changing experience. So I think I was eight years old when this began. You mm. were probably a similar age. Mm. Uh, far from home, boarding school. Um, and uh, for those not familiar with this world, this isn't like the Sunday choir. We were we were singing ten more services every week. So yeah. every day we would we would perform about an hour of music, um, often to a nearly empty building because we were in the service of the Almighty and and the sort of English choral tradition. Um, and it's strange because certainly for me, and I, I don't know how it was for you, Ben, uh, as a child, you sort of do what you're told, basically, don't you? So, you know, yeah. you're in the choir, choir practice at seven, seven in the morning, and then there's another one in the evening, and then you sing even song. And that's just, you've spent three hours of your day taking part in extremely high quality, you know, professional standard yes. musical performance. And you're doing it every day for years. And I, I never really thought of it. I, you know, obviously, I knew it was unusual because not, not everyone went to that type of school. But it never occurred to me that this was a really sort of intense experience that, that probably you know, shapes you for, for all your life, whatever you end up doing. Oh, right. Totally. I mean, the, uh, 
Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis and mm. the uh, the Psalms that we would sing. But uh, you get the final say on this because you became head chorister. My voice yeah. broke uh, a year early, so um, I was basically following around the train of arch- archbishops at um, <laughs> in a cassock. Um, yes, well, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's odd because certainly since my voice has broken, I... I enjoy singing. I've sung in choirs, but I definitely don't have the kind of voice that you want to hear on its own. You know, it's best with a lot of other people in the room. But once upon a time, you know, things were very different. Um, but yes, uh, yeah, it, it, I who who knew that we had this uh, intriguing connection? Right, and and um, so so here's a um, here's a challenge. Have you got a photograph of you as a chorister? I have found one of myself. I'm going to search for one for for, for you and put that up as our Twitter advertisement for this podcast. I'll get well, I, 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 will, I will dig around. I'm, there was a, so there was a um, there was a news report. So there was this thing called the Choir Schools Association, I think, which yes, I'm no doubt yeah. your school was, it would have been part of yeah. too. And they had an AGM annual meeting, and there was there was this sort of concern that the schools they weren't doing very well. They weren't recruiting enough choristers. And, and and the BBC News team came to Tewkesbury because that's where the meeting was going on. And obviously, you know, we, we were photogenic little choir boys singing away. And so uh, I, I remember uh, it was, I think it was the nine o'clock news introduced by Michael Burke. Um, oh. You know, this was top billing. And we, we were, yeah. I was singing the, the solo, which was sort of on the headline thing. So somewhere in the BBC archive, that thing must be there. Oh, your dulcet tones are there. I'm afraid my my singing is confined to the shower, which is yes. I think r- well these really days where that, it, that's probably where it needs to be. Certainly for me. So, um, Arthur, very last question, um, and it's not one I can ask very many of my guests because they really don't get it, particularly mm-hmm. people of a certain age in the United States. But if I were to ask you, what is your favourite Pet Shop Boys song? Yeah. How would you answer? Yes, it's such a good question. Because there's so many to choose from, um, and I, I, because I, I knew you would be asking me this, and um, I, I, I kind of, I, I sort of thought back because obviously um, there are there are the sort of the cheesy ones, and then um, there are the the kind of silly ones and the one, but I I think what have I done to deserve this? Because it's it sort of. It kind of it, it's well, it's a real earworm one, isn't it? So it, once it's in your head, it's going to stay, and it's quite annoying and sort it of is. silly. And and, and um, it was during their pointy hat. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. it's sort of very sort of dark, kind of nineteen eighties sort of low light, sort of electronic everything. So yeah, I think I think that's the one. Yeah. Oh, well, super. Thank you. Um, well, Arthur, thank you so much for giving us this extraordinary Cook's tour of. Um, the interactions between the global security and global health world. Really, really appreciate it. You are a shot in the arm. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Arthur. If you haven't already, please subscribe to his podcast, Doomsday Watch with Arthur Snell, as well as the wonderfully eccentric and informative Bunker and Oh God, What Now podcasts from Podmasters. And don't forget to buy his book, How Britain Broke the World. Thanks also to our director and producer, Eric Espera of Newsdoc Media. Thanks also to Icana Health Action Lab and the Global Health Reporting Centre, as well as the Health Podcast Network. And finally, a big thanks to you. Have a great week and a safe week, everybody.